shoutouts again for tuning into the Psychedelic Podcast. I'm your host, Tina Marie, here with Scott Silverman. Big shout out to the s-j-network.com. Scott, it's a pleasure having you today. How are you? I'm much better than I look. And since you and I have some technical issues, we won't tell anybody what that looks like. But I'm great. I'm really great. It's really nice to be here again. Thank you. Would you like to give everybody in the audience a little bit about what you do and what you're about? You are a crisis coach, and I see, and you've spoken about addiction a lot. Well, I, I do. I, I'm a crisis coach, a family navigator, and those are my dogs. Uh, so clearly a package might be getting delivered. And I work in the field of addiction, and I help families help navigate and get their loved ones access to treatment and help them find the best resources with whatever's going on with their family. I run a treatment center. It's called Confidential Recovery. And what we do is we provide an outpatient environment for working professionals to keep their job, keep their lifestyle, and also go to treatment. Because right now, between substance abuse, overdosing, alcohol consumption, vaping, overdoses, Oxycontin, opioid addiction, we're in a real crisis right now in our, in our country. And we've been in a crisis before the actual pandemic with that, two people dying left and right, going homeless and so many People need that kind of support that they don't get from their families anymore when they've given up. So what is the stage that people get to in terms of addiction where you decide that that is considered a crisis? It is a great question. And sometimes it's a fine line. Sometimes it's a a landslide. But for me, when I get a phone call from the family, because that's kind of my specialty is crisis coaching and crisis support and family navigating. Because when you have an issue like that, is someone acting out inappropriately behaviorally? Are they depressed? Are they having a mental health episode? Mm -hmm. Are they taking mood-altering substances? Do they take and participate with addiction in the sense of trying to self-medicate to feel better? And when that's happening, and if someone starts to spiral or goes too far or ingests something that they weren't sure what it was, but they felt like they needed to take more, and they start spinning... That's a real crisis, meaning it's not me sitting down with you going, oh, gee whiz, you know, Tina, it looks like you and your friends appear to be parting too much. Why don't we talk about it? But if there's things that you've been doing that cause someone to ask that question or even talk about it, it's not a crisis per se, but if it's not managed, it can become one. Right. And so what can happen when somebody enters into one of these crises with their families and their friends? What have you seen, if that's okay to talk about? Sure. Loss of job, loss of family, loss of significant other, children emulating what the parents are doing, cohorts in their in their work environment, other family members who distance themselves if their behavior escalates and goes too far. Um, you know, I believe that when we talk about substance abuse, I believe that people who truly have an addiction, they have an allergy to the drugs, will respond differently to them. You know, the person who has a glass of wine <clears throat> at night for dinner is a person a little bit different, but someone who has four glasses of wine before they go to dinner, then they have two more glasses at dinner, then they have some whiskey or bourbon after dinner, that's a bit of a, an issue. And that would be something I might define as uh, somebody who has more than just an abuse problem, they may have a real addiction issue. And when people go too far, again, the mind starts to spin and things start to happen and generally nothing good comes from it as normal everyday friends, when you see somebody spiraling out of control or beginning to, and they're not taking your advice, what is the next step for that person if you really want to help somebody in this type of situation? That's a great question. And I think the most 
robust response to that would be if it's someone you care about, how you approach them is, is important because when people hear for the first time from somebody out loud, you know, you have a drinking problem or I think you have a drinking problem or you appear to have a drinking problem. What happens is that person is usually embarrassed, feels bad, and the stigma starts to kick in. And then what happens with that stigma, they will cloud, cover up, and try to camouflage that behavior. I mentioned the person who comes to a dinner and has four glasses of wine before they get to the dinner. They already want to be happy before they get to the event. And then when they get to the event, they try to get even happier. And I only mentioned that out of my own experience as somebody who drank for a long time and drugged for a long time. And now all goes well. And I say goes well because I, I believe in the philosophy of recovery that each day is a day that, you know, it's, it's called the present. We call it a gift. And that's the way I look at life. So I'll be coming up on 36 years on the 13th of November, 2020. So I'm excited about that. And that, that takes a little bit of work every day. But before we go too far in the addiction concept, because there are people who don't believe it, they believe it's a moral failing. And, you know, some people say, gee whiz, Scott, if you didn't pick up a drink, you wouldn't have had a drinking problem. So, no, you could make that statement. That might be true for some. But for me, it wasn't a matter of I had a choice. There's something in my mind that said, I need to have those four glasses before I go to the party. And when I get to the party, I'm going to have four more. And that's just the way my attitude was. But I like to liken, I call the disease of addiction to something everyone's going to understand. And that is, you know, when it comes down to diabetes, diabetes is a disease. Diabetes mm -hmm. is something that some people have and some people don't. And when you have diabetes, the first thing that you do to discover if that's what it is, is you go see a medical professional, you have your blood work done, and they run the appropriate tests. And when you're diagnosed, if you have diabetes, what happens is the medical professional will prescribe insulin generally and some sort of monitoring system to check your blood sugar level throughout the day. And you manage it. And, and it's that simple. And when you think about the disease of addiction, if you can equate it to the disease or addiction of diabetes, you know, the actual disease of diabetes, nobody chooses it. No one ever wakes up in the morning and says, gee whiz, Tina, today I'm going to be able to mess up everyone's life, piss off my right. wife, embarrass my kids, and maybe drunk driving will get me arrested or potentially killed or kill someone else. I don't think mm -hmm. anyone I've ever met, and I've met tens of thousands of people who have this issue and their family yeah. members, but it's something that my brain was wired that way. I grew up with four kids in my family and I was the only kid who had the issue. Do you think that a lot of studies on the human brain and especially people that have had addiction issues have been done and where we can realize if it's something within the frontal lobe or maybe the amygdala not being fully developed when they started getting addicted to certain substances or perhaps some kind of trauma that happened in somebody's past that is a huge attribution to these types of problems? That's a very technical question. And it might- Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Throw them at me. Here's the way I would answer that. The wiring of the brain is the wiring of the brain. Somebody who's experienced trauma going through life as a young child, or maybe even in the womb, that trauma untreated will amplify, aggravate, or find ways to really stimulate that the inappropriate wiring of the brain. I'm trying to keep it simple. Meaning, I was born with a brain that had that wiring that was different than my siblings and my parents. Right. 
by their parents. There was some gambling in the family. There was some eating issues in the family. But I was the one who chose or I was chosen to consume uh, mood-altering substances. So the issue around untreated trauma is so significant. And for example, most people, when they get clean or they go through treatment and they remove what I call the anesthesia, the bottom line is now they're left with those behavioral health issues. Now they're left to dealing with the depression, the anxiety, the sleep disorders, the other modalities of potential addiction, whether it be food, internet, sex, gambling, other things that take place. So in order to really treat somebody who has behavioral health issues, who also suffers from the disease of addiction, you've got to remove the anesthesia, I call it. You've got to get the poison out of the system. And at the end of the day, what happens is that's the process. And because recovery is different than treatment. Treatment is different than recovery. Treatment is like, you know, the diagnosis, the assessment, then the, the modalities necessary to help remove those cravings and the dependency, if you will, on the mood altering substances. If you take the reverse of that, someone had some trauma and they wanted to numb themselves, the odds are if they have a pre-wired brain or an incorrectly wired brain, I don't want to make it sound like it's a, it's a defect. It's just just something some people have, like some people get cancer. Some people have heart disease. Some people have one foot shorter than the other. It's just kind of the way nature is. But at the end of the day, you could look at the other way. So if someone's experienced, say a four-year-old has a tremendous traumatic event in their life, they lose a parent, for example, or they watch one of their friends pass away or something like that. And then as they get older, they start to have these feelings, untreated trauma, and they come up and someone says, hey, you know what, Barbara? You should take one of these pills because this is what I do when I get sad. And all of a sudden, Barbara's now Mm. addicted to these pills. And it wasn't a conscious choice, but if she's predisposed, the odds are she could get addicted quickly. And then you amplify that with the trauma that's not treated. It's like putting gasoline on a fire. So that cycle starts to really get aggravated and really fires up that internal part of the brain that doesn't do real well repairing itself on its own. You need outside help, therapy, clinical support, sometimes medication, you know, sometimes just simply meditating, running, walking, thinking, breathing, yoga. Um, There's all kinds of tools, journaling. And, you know, you only go to medication if you have to, but sometimes people require. So, right. And you're a great advocate for a lot of this and amazing responses thus far, by the way. So on your show, Scott H. Silverman, The Happy Hour. What do you speak about the most for the audience? And how do you correlate all of the advice that you have and the experiences that you've had in helping other people now in being a coach? How did you get to that place in life? I'm going to take those as two questions. The first part is the happy hour show actually came from an idea years ago from a gentleman that works at a television station and said, you know, you He said, you're not very handsome, but you have a great voice. And I said, well, you know, please bring it. Tell me more. God almighty. So he said, you ought to do a radio show. And I said, let's get it started. You know, and then we're thinking, you know, it was like we were meeting literally at five o'clock. He says, you could actually do it like five to seven. And I said, well, that's actually happy hour. That's when I used to drink. One, one of my one of my big times to drink was happy hour five to seven because you know maybe it's because I'm Jewish and buying one drink and getting one free really got me excited, 
but I would go to happy hour because it was at the end of my day and I could have those drinks before I went home to maybe smoke a joint. So in front of my wife, I wasn't abusing too much. I was not a very good illusionist. So yeah. the other part of the coaching, you know, one of the things that you learn in recovery, and I did anyway, is you have to find ways to give it away to keep it. Find ways to give away what you've learned to be a mentor, to be a sponsor, to be a friend, to be an advocate for someone else. And over the years, that's what I did. And then I started in a nonprofit back in the 90s called Second Chance. And it was all about working with people coming out of jail and prison and, and homeless people. They were labeled, you know, the knuckleheads, the community's throwaways. And I was always challenged by those who had multiple barriers like myself. You know, although I grew up in a, you might call a functional family, and I worked a lot as a kid and didn't do really well in school, got in some trouble. And then I crashed and burned when I turned 30 and tried to take my own life. So I had a lot mm -hmm. of life experience. So when I sat with people, I, I thought I was able to bring some tools to the table. And I have a different approach than most people do. And I, I say it's different because I don't like to tell people no, because I think when you tell someone no and you start to get that finger pointing up there going, you know, you're not tall enough, you're not smart enough, you know, if you were this or you were that or you'd gone here or you, or you dated so-and-so like we suggested or went to that college, whatever we hear as children, people telling us things that we need to do to improve. I try to approach people differently. I try to make suggestions. I try to ask questions and I try to engage people to share the tools that I have learned about and see if they're a good fit for them. My attitude is, look, if your life is bitching, okay, if everything's going the way you want it to go, don't change a thing. But if there are certain things that aren't working the way you want, or there are certain things you're doing that are really just causing more than a speed bump now, it's like having two flat tires and you can't seem to go a mile without bumping into something, there might be time to do some reflective thinking. The difficulty mm -hmm. with reflective thinking is if your thinker is off, I like to say my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I never go there alone. So I talk to people <laughs> about, you know, what's going on and we find out, you know, and then what I do is when I get to a certain point and I realize that this individual really needs a higher level of support or clinical support and I don't make a judgment and I don't have that kind of training. So what I do is when someone says, you know, I think I might need some help and I'll tell you, I need help. Three of the hardest words in the English language. You know, go F yourself. People can say all day long. But when it comes to I need help personally, it's mm -hmm. really hard. So when I can get someone to a point where they go, you know what? I'm not sure or I don't know or I don't mm -hmm. understand or I would really like to get some answers. That's when I start to be able to know. That's that close. They've turned the corner and they're ready and willing mm -hmm. and they're going to be teachable. And then I start to make the referral. You know, go talk to so-and-so. They're a great psychologist. Or here's an individual who's a psychiatrist you may want to start with. And I said, don't take my suggestions. Go back to your primary doctor. Go back to your family. You know, go talk to your faith-based leader. Go talk to someone you trust. Go talk to someone who maybe has been through what you've been through that you may know in your inner circle and ask them what they did. But by doing the fact-finding now, they're now, they've got some skin in the game. They're in the process of the solution. And it sounds like they're probably ready to maybe receive some information as well. And how have these people found you? I think it's amazing that you've worked with the homeless community and people coming out of prisons. Those are people that really, really need support because a lot of the times, as everybody knows, they 
might have been in there a while have no idea what's going on on the outside world, especially people being released now during COVID. They're coming out to a whole new world. I'm sure it's so scary. I'm getting chills thinking about it. So thank you for what you do doing with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I I haven't done that in about 10 years now, but I I do a lot of triaging with people. I just, you know, I just get emotional thinking about this. There's an organization, a big one called the VA, the Veterans Administration, and yeah. Confidential Recovery is is working really hard right now and has for two years. I've been a project of mine to get into network with a provider that pays for non-active duty veterans to get access to substance abuse treatment, which is my specialty. And careful not to blow this individual's anonymity, but through an old relationship, we connected and, and they were able to kind of bring my name into the room with some credibility that I didn't have because they don't know me from Adam. So right. I found that life is all about relationships and what I learned and everyone used to get irritated because I found a way to work with people who had barriers to employment, barriers to life skills that I tapped into what their number one skill sets were. And I can give you some examples if you want to hear them, but it was amazing because I even worked with veterans who had criminal histories and the traditional veteran resources in our community, like most they won't help a veteran who has a criminal history. Meaning if you're mm-hmm. on probation or parole or you've done time in a county jail or prison and it's on your record, you have to check that box. The way the federal funding would come into the veterans associations and veteran groups, they couldn't help them. So they referred them all to me. And I was getting them jobs faster than mm-hmm. anyone else could do it. And everyone said, well, how is it, how is it you're doing that? The, we, we can't even help these people and you're getting them jobs. They don't want to. They chose not to. They don't well, want that it, it, on, the, the on them, I feel. The way their funding was set up, they were telling, well, we, they won't fund us to help them. I said, so then why would you, then they were jealous when they found that I was, I had this high percentage of placement. They got upset with me. They go, you know, wow. we're hearing that you're getting more vets jobs than we are. And we're a vets program. How do you do it? So do you want me to tell you how I did it, Tina? It was amazing. Yeah. I'm such a yes. smart guy. I called businesses that were run by veterans. There you go. <laughs> and I said, hey, I have a referral for you. What do you mean? I have some, some men and women who have been trained on job readiness. They've been trained to come to your business with a great attitude. And guess what? They're a veteran. No. Would you be willing to? Absolutely. I said, one little caveat. They have what I call non-traditional working paths. People would say, well, wait, wait, what does that mean? I said, well, that means they have a significant gap in their employment. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? I said, well, that means they've been away for a while. Some have worked for the state. Some have worked for the federals. You know, I try to lighten it up, make, make it humorous. Yeah. And eventually they go, oh, you mean they're ex-cons? <sighs> and I oh, go, goodness. I said, no, they're actually, they're, they're human beings. And they got caught and they've done their time and we've helped them rethink and retool to get ready to come back into the mainstream of the community. And I said, I will go as far to say that I will guarantee you, you put our graduates of our program up against any other candidate in the room. And I'd be willing to bet you'll hire them before you'll hire the rest. And there was no cost to the employer. So with that kind of a underlying embracing advocacy for the client, they got hired. And then what I did was part of our training with people that have been out of work is 
we'd say, Johnny, after you get past your 90-day probation, you know, go in there, come early, stay late, be willing. You know, everything we taught it was a four-week training with a two-year follow. And that's kind of how the treatment center I run goes now. It's an eight-week program. Insurance pays, so it has to be structured based on what the state says, too. And then I said, after 90 days, I want you to write a letter back to the next class. We had a class every month and tell them about your success. Mm-hmm. And in that letter, let our job developers know if there's any more openings at your company. So after about a year of this kind of tactical, strategic thinking, we had employers waiting for graduates. I love that. That is amazing. Good and, job and I, on you. Well, you know, my <laughs> attitude used to be, I used to say, Tina, I'd say, if you can fog a mirror, if you can fog a mirror, I can help you get a job. That's People amazing. Work. Well, and that's true. And what was fascinating was working specifically with women because women who had spent time in the criminal justice system, and I don't want to generalize here, but just kind of a mm-hmm. snapshot, you know, female, late twenties, mom of one or two, maybe, you know, one or two dads, maybe not, but they were, they were the responsible party because the fathers of the children were off doing their own thing. And when the women would come to our class and I used to go out to the women's jail every two weeks and I would pitch them and say, look, this is four weeks. It's not going to be easy. It's nine to five, but I promise you, if you complete the four weeks of training, and I'm going to tell you right now, half of you won't, but if you complete it, I promise you we'll do everything we can to help get a job. Then the hands would go up. Well, I don't really, I don't really have any skills. I go, well, what does that mean? Well, I've only been a mom. Only. I've only been a mom. I said, well, let's, let's run down some of those skill sets. You're a supervisor. <laughs> you're an advocate. You're a motivator. You're a volunteer. You're a transport specialist. You know how to work your way around the house. You're a mechanical engineer. You know how to, you're a chef. And those are just the things I can think of. And I said, if you're telling me you've been in this county facility for a year and you're still doing well and, you know, you're one of the prodigies inside the system and you've got extra volunteer work because you've behaved based on what the rules told you had to do to get yourself out of everyday, you know, grunt work, you clearly got leadership skills. So we would put all this on their resume because it's all true. But when you self-assess, look at me, I'm a loser. My, my mother has my children. You know, I've been down for four years. It took me years to get rid of the method. And I said, look, that was yesterday. We can't change yesterday. Let's work on today yeah. and plan for tomorrow. So it was a lot of it was attitudinal, but it really worked. And I've tried to instill that kind of thinking with my kids. And I think it's worked with them. I can't seem to get my wife to shift on that, but her attitude's better now that we've both been quarantined for, I don't know, since <laughs> March. We've, we've worked on That's some of good. that communication. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes she's in a room breathing and it just irritates me, but my sense would be with my personality. I could be walking out from the outside and irritating her. I can't hear her. She's in the other room right now because she works at home right now as well because of her business she's in. So the concept of working with people and meeting them where they're at is something I've always done. And right. if you want, I'll tell you how I started the program and why I started it. It's, it's kind of an interesting story. What do you think? You want to hear? Yeah. It? Okay. Okay. 
So I was a volunteer at a homeless shelter doing the feeding program on Sundays. And I did Sundays because it was a church day. My people, our temple, they asked for volunteers. Who wants to come down and help us feed the homeless? And I'm like, okay, sounded good to me. So, you know, and they go, once a year, we want everyone to come once a year. I went down, I stayed for like three months. So the head of volunteers came up to me one day and she says, Scott, how is it you're still here? I know your family, blah, blah, blah. I said, I said, I'm enjoying this. Is it okay? She said, absolutely. Keep coming back. Then she asked the question. She says, how is it you know so many of these homeless people? <laughs> I said, I know some of them, but some of them I see in my meetings of recovery too. Oh, I didn't know you were in recovery. I said, well, you never asked. So anyway, <laughs> I'm there six months later. So now I'm nine months in this volunteer program. Every Sunday morning, get up at 4.30, go down there, set up, cook, clean, pass out food for everybody. And I started seeing these people week after week after week. And I would say, would you like to go to work? Oh, I love that. Well, they said, well, yeah, but look at me. I said, yeah, look at you. What? We, we can change that. That's easy. The outside job's easy. We, I can help you get a haircut, find some <laughs> clothes at a thrift store, and we go with the right approach. We won't have to come up with any money. I'll send, get you to the barber college. Maybe you can go see a doctor, maybe a dentist. They have them here. You just have to ask. So every Sunday now, after feeding, I'd sit around with a group of men initially, and we started talking about it. And I said, what should I do? I said, well, whatever that is you have on your face, shave it off. <laughs> You know, that hair that looks like, you know, you went to Home Depot and got something and glued it on top of your head. Get rid, of that. Get rid of that. I said, people hire people. So make it easy for someone to accept you. That's easy rather than for you to go there and, and with entitlement going, I've been homeless for four years. I'm on parole for another three years and someone needs to give me a job. A lot of them never, ever feel like that, too. I mean, I've dealt with the homeless community a lot myself, and it's really sad because they've just given up completely on themselves. They never have somebody to reach out to where they at least feel like they don't. They don't know where to start because a lot of them are dealing with mental health issues, and it's really, really sad Right. because I saw a lot of that in D.C., so I think that's a beautiful thing. So, so I'll finish the story, but go back to that point because that's a great point. So basically – I started helping these guys. We'd go in the bathroom, we'd stand in a mirror and we'd point out things and the things that are easy to change. And they did it. And eventually they started getting jobs. And about three months later, they're coming back. Now they're sitting in the circle. They're the mentor. They're talking to the other guys going, Hey, I was just where you were. I'm, I'm working now. I said, I'm moving into an apartment with some friends in another week. I'm getting out of this shelter. But Aww. the way this... So I go pitch all the social service agents in San Diego. They, they had a monthly monthly meeting, but a quarterly meeting where people like me, who were nobodies, could come in and present an idea. So I went and said, look, I'd like to help the clients you serve get jobs. And here's how I'm going to do it. Here's some samples of what I've done on my own the last year with no you know, compensation, just out of the goodness of wanting to see if I could take somebody who thought they were just – part of the landscape, their roots were in the concrete and encourage them to maybe take a look at a different direction they could take. And I said, and it worked. And so they go, okay, well, why don't you come back in 90 days? I said, look, it took me 90 days to get this meeting. How about you all have a nice little conversation and I'll come back in and then you can give me your ideas or opinions and we'll go from there. Half an hour later, come back in. Well, Scott, we all love your enthusiasm. We think you've got a great idea. But at the end of the day, we've decided we're not going to be able to work with you. 
What? Wait. And I said, can I ask why? Well, here's what they said. If you get our clients jobs, what will we do? Wow. The selfishness of corporations. No, no. These are social services. These are non-profits. These are faith-based people. These are social workers. Oh my gosh, that's awful. These are the frontline professionals. That makes people. that's horrible. I said, so you won't work with me because you think I'm going to steal your clients and stealing your clients by helping them get empowered to be self-sufficient? How could that mm. possibly be something you don't support 110%? So that night I came home, talked to my wife, and I had the worst case of the efforts I've ever had in my life. Next day, I went to the library and had to start a nonprofit, and that's where Second Chance was created from that momentum. That's my base for you know almost everything I do today. Right, and sometimes you have to be turned down and neglected in certain aspects of your life or told that you can't do it in order to get that momentum to want to go and do something better and fix the system that's broken. And you have done that and you're helping people and you're doing it on your own terms. And I think that is just fantastic. Have you seen the name of my book? I actually did. I looked it up earlier, but I, when I was going to put the stream on initially, I wanted to use your picture from the logo of your podcast. So I didn't, I, I forgot the name of it. The name of the book is tell me, no, I dare you. Yes. Tell me, no, I dare you. Exactly. <laughs> Love that's it. Exactly. What you just said. Most seven out of 10 people. When I was doing research for the book, they would be told no, and they would stop. That's a lot of people. I think, unfortunately, but everyone listening don't let anybody tell you no if it's something you really believe in. Listen to Scott. Look what he did. Scott Silverman, everybody. He's done it all. I mean, he's been an addict. He's recovered 36 years, right? In November. That's mm -hmm. a long time to be sober. And look at all the people that you've helped. I think that is just a beautiful, wonderful thing. So don't give up. Scott, where can everybody find you? Google me, Scott H. Silverman by my name. And I want to do this. I want to challenge your fans and friends and family of your fans. I, I'm going to give you my direct cell phone number because that's what I do. Area code 619-993-2738. That's 619-993-2738. I dare you to call or text me. Now, some of you are going to say, well, wait a second. I'm already way over here in Indiana. I don't care. 90% of my coaching work, if you're ready for this, is done by phone. I will help you navigate in your community. And I'll give anybody who mentions your name, Tina, anybody, I'll give them 15 minutes of free coaching. And when you look up on yourcrisiscoach.com, that's my website, yourcrisiscoach.com, you'll see I'm not cheap per hour, but I'll give you 15 minutes absolutely free, which is my second favorite F word. So... <laughs> I encourage people, make a phone call because there's help, there's hope, and there's treatment, and there are resolutions, and there are ways to make changes that aren't as hard as you think if you're ready and you're willing. All right, everybody. You heard that from Scott Silverman first. 15 minutes of his time for a consultation. I think that's a fantastic thing. If you know somebody or have a family member that might be dealing with a crisis, give them that phone number too because... 
you can help somebody in that way. You can't always be the therapist, but you might be able to get them help through Mr. Silverman here. So Scott, thank you so much for coming onto the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm sure everybody's going to find your story really enlightening. I was really happy to have you on. Thank you. And I hope people do call, reach out. There is hope.